Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. This is a crowd podcast. You think about frontmen in great rock bands, and there's a look. Yeah, it's a cliche, but cliches are there for a reason. Skinny hips, like Mick Jagger, his pout. Big hair, wild voice, like Robert Plant. Poetry, like Jim Morrison. Maybe romantically wasted, like Morrison too. Like Byron. Girls and drugs and things that most of us would never do. Things we don't even know you can do. That's Michael Hutchins. All those things. If you saw him and you knew nothing about him, not the 30 million records sold, that voice, like he's whispering in your ear, the scandals... You'd know. His eyes, his clothes, the way he moves, the way he pushes back his curls. You see him on stage and it all makes sense. The open shirts, the leather trousers, the way he holds the mic. He strokes it, pushes his mouth right up close. All these people out there in front of him, and it's weird, it's like he's on his own, the way he's so wrapped up in it, but he's absolutely content being the total centre of attention too. And the weirdest thing is that everyone in the audience, they feel it's just him and them alone. The moves are for them, not the person over there. The looks, all for them. The words, the ones he whispers and then yells. You get it and he gets it and it's between you, this understanding. Being a rock star in the 1980s, maybe you could feel trapped by those cliches. The rules had been set 20 years before you were playing a part. But this is what Bono says, and he should know. He says, I was doing an impersonation of a rock star. Michael? He was the real thing. So this is a story about a man who was a cliché, but totally himself too. And of all the things we're going to talk about, here's the other person you can't forget. Paula Yates. Here's one moment for now. It'll all make sense later. It's 1985 and Yates is a TV presenter in Britain. She's also married to a man that people think is some sort of saint, but that's for later too. She's got Hutchins on the show, his band, In Excess. She's chatting to the other host about what's coming up and she says, I mainly interview Michael's crotch. He's the sexiest man on earth. You see Hutchins on stage, leather jacket, denim waistcoat, Left hand wrapped around the mic, right arm thrown out, dark curly hair spilling over his face. He's doing that thing with his voice, lips on the mic, whispering, breathing, then flicking his hair back. All cliche, all him. Then it's the two of them together. Yates, short blonde hair, leather trousers of her own, playing with her earrings, eyelashes and pouts. Hutchins. Sort of listening to what she's saying, sort of just watching, knowing what's going on. The husband, the saint, he's behind them. He's in the same shot, pretending not to listen. But he knows too. We all know. Afterwards, band gone, Yates is talking to the manager. 
I'm going to have that boy, she says. And that's when it all changes for Michael Hutchins. All the stuff we're going to talk about, the good times, the fame, the girls, the dope, it all comes down to him and her in the end. How he died, why he died, why we're still talking about them so long after, and why we'll still be talking about them after this short break. This is an advertisement from BetterHelp Therapy Online. Hello, it's Tom Fordyce here. I'm one of the writers on Death of a Rockstar, and I do hope you're enjoying the series. I wanted to tell you about BetterHelp. Now, we all carry around different stresses in life, big and small. A lot of the people I wrote about for this series absolutely did. And as we know, if we keep those stresses bottled up, it can impact us negatively. That's where therapy can be great. Therapy isn't just for people who've experienced major trauma. It can help you understand the way your brain works and why you feel a particular way. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's all online, designed to be convenient, flexible and suited to your schedule. All you need to do is fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a registered therapist. And you can switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. With over 1,000 therapists in the UK already, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. Rockstar listeners get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com slash rockstarpod. That's betterhelp.com slash rockstarpod. Hey, this is Dewey Halpas, host of Peer Pleasure on the Sound Talent Media Podcast Network. Join me each week as I explore another long-form conversation with one of your favorite musicians, actors, comedians, or creatives. From Chino Moreno of the Deftones, John Gorley of Portugal, the man, to Fat Mike from NoFX, and Ian MacKay from Fugazi and Minor Threat, we go all over the map. From Fall Out Boy to Slayer, Peer Pleasure has it all. Check us out now on Sound Talent Media. This is Death of a Rockstar from Crowd Network. Talented people die every day, in cars, hospitals, on nights out. So it shouldn't be any more tragic if it's someone who just happens to be a fantastic singer or musician. But it feels like it is, and it feels more shocking, and so many more of us care. Rockstars, they tell us how we feel. They change our moods. They change the clothes we wear, the people we hang out with, the way we remember things. And we know everything about them. Or we think we do. It's them who give us those ludicrous moments, the ones where you're jumping around, singing your heart out, feeling understood. You're lost in their moment. In this series, we're going to explore the lives and deaths of music stars who made us feel that way. If you want more episodes of Death of a Rockstar, then subscribe to our feed and you'll find the stories of Whitney Houston, Otis Redding and Kurt Cobain, maybe the most reluctant rock star of them all. And there's also a new Crowd Network series called Death of a Sports Star, based around the lives of Kobe Bryant, Justin Fashionew, Payne Stewart and sadly many more. Hit subscribe, leave a review and help us make more episodes by telling a friend and spreading the word. Now, let's go back to the story of Michael Hutchins. What matters in his childhood? He's not a poor boy, Michael Hutchins. 
He grows up mainly in Hong Kong, goes to private schools, goes back to Australia at 12. His mum takes him to LA for a year. He likes the beat poets, motorbikes, standard teenage boy stuff. His parents divorce when he's 15. He seems okay about it. He's got mates. They're in the northern suburbs of Sydney. There's three brothers, the Farris boys. Two more mates from the same school. Here's what you need to know. Tim is the oldest, plays guitar. Middle brother Andrew, keyboards mainly. Little brother John, drums. The other two, Kirk's guitar and sax. Bass? That's Gary Beers. Might be the most bass player name ever. They mess about playing music in the Farris family garage. They call the band the Farris Brothers. Makes sense. Michael can't play an instrument, so he tries singing. He's got the look. We know that. So does their manager. He tells him to be weird, so Michael works on it. Wearing a velvet cape, being Byron, reaching out his arms into the crowd like some sort of faith healer. Of course he's a frontman. Here's three stories that sum him up. One, he gets a house share and cooks once in four years. Two, he has one proper job, ever. It's in an electronics factory. He lasts two days. Three, his nickname in that house share? The Little Prince. No one minds because he's all charm, he's all looks. He can be shy on his own, but with women he's, well, he's a frontman. He has a slight lisp. That seems to help too. Here's Bono again. Michael made women feel fantastic. So that's him, the front man. And they all practice. The band changes the name. They like XTC, English band, all initials. There's a jam in Australia called IXL, all letters again. Borrow a bit of this, a bit of that, and you've got in excess. Catchy, memorable, much better. It's hard in the Aussie pub scene. 300 gigs a year, sometimes three in one night. Midnight, 3am, 6am, sweat dripping off the ceiling, no head counts or age counts, the whole place heaving, fights and beer and weed. It makes money. And nowhere makes more money than the mining towns in the outback. All these blokes earning good cash because no one else wants that job. 40 degrees all day, drinking all night. Turn up in a velvet cape and it goes one of two ways. They either love you or they want to kill you. So you have to live it. Be that man. Make them believe in you. And Hutchins learns it. And the band come with him. Albums getting bigger, tours going overseas. It's the mid-1980s and MTV is taking over. MTV is all about the look. So it works for In Excess and the gigs get bigger. They support Adamant in the US. They support Queen in Britain. You want lessons in being a charismatic frontman? There you go, perfect. Here's a good Hutchins story about when they get a number one in France. It's his birthday. They wake him up to tell him the news. He's naked, always sleeps naked. And he goes out on the balcony of his hotel room and there's a group of nuns in the square outside praying. He looks at them. They look at him, naked. And he smiles and shouts, we're number one. The songs, 
They all come from Andrew, Farris and Michael. Or rather, Andrew does the melodies, Michael does the words. Andrew knows when he has something. He records it on a tape deck, and when Michael swings by later, he's always later. He sings any old words over the top, a scribble in his notebook, half a lyric. He tries something else, maybe something scribbled down days before. And they always fit together. Pretty quickly, too. In 1986, they're trying to write their next album. Andrew has something bluesy, all piano. It's okay, but no more. Michael sits down on a stool next to him and listens and sings. Don't ask me what you know is true. That's the start of it. A song called Never Tear Us Apart. It's the one you're thinking of now. The piano replaced by strings. Minor chords at the start, mournful and heartbreaking. Then the lift to the major chords and the ecstatic chorus. You hear it once and you sing it back. That's what they can do. There's another one, a few days later. Andrew with a bass line, a bit queen, a bit another one bites the dust. Then a guitar line jangling down. And over it, Hutchins singing, whispering in your ear like it's just you and just him, knowing what's going on. I need you tonight. That's what he whispers. And Bono, he borrows the whisper for the start of With or Without You and in excess go to number one in America. And it all makes sense. The album's called Kick. The sound of it, it's everything about the late 80s. Big, slick, polished, self-consciously clever, brash. In two years, it sells 10 million copies. The tour takes 14 months. The band have their own plane with an excess on the side. All those cliches, but totally them too. The band's name, there's another reason why it makes sense. Of course there is. Let's start with the drugs. Hutchins. His nickname is Candyman because he gives out pills and lines like the sweets. They carry them with them on that tour. They stick them in the bag that carries their makeup. It's the 80s. Men wear makeup. They call it the fag bag. They're not shy about any of this. It's in the official autobiography written by Anthony Bosser. There's a story about landing that plane at an airport and customs vans roaring towards the plane. Hutchins pulls out a huge bag of cocaine. The rest are panicking. Aren't you going to hide it? No. He sticks two enormous lines on the table and snorts them. He gets the rest of the bag. He throws it up in the air and tries to snort it mid-air. It's in his hair, down his face, on his clothes. He just laughs. Isn't this what front men do? Right, the girls... For seven years, he's going out with a model, Michelle Bennett. Remember her, she's important later. He's also seeing other people all the time, but he's a front man. So he starts seeing Kylie Minogue, and the first thing he says to her is, what are we going to do first, have lunch or have sex? He probably says something instead of have sex, but you know that. Here's another story that spells it out. Hutchins meets a Swedish girl. She wants him to come to the bathroom with her at a gig. So far, quite normal. Then she makes him wait outside the cubicle. She's peeing. He's waiting, wondering, and then he realises. She's peeing the rhythm of Need You Tonight. That's the trick. That's where he's got to. There's a summit to it all for Michael Hutchins. It's Wembley Stadium, 13th of July, 1991. 
In excess of headlining, 72,000 fans packed in, filling the big grassy pitch, the old stands, everywhere. This is his moment. But it's also, really, the start of the end. On stage is amazing. He's wearing a tight, long-sleeved black jumper, white trousers. The left leg's striped. The right leg's got stars. Six in the band, but he's the centre of it all. He does the quiet whisper, cradling the mic. And he switches to the big voice too, all echo and reverb, making it fill that massive stadium. Need you tonight. Never tear us apart. It's him and the thousands out there locked together. Just him and them. Imagine what that feels like, the power that gives you, how it makes you feel about yourself, how much you matter. But here's the other side. Before they go on stage, he's walking around the VIP area, he's giving out ecstasy pills, he's listening to something on his headphones, an album called Blue Lines by a British band called Massive Attack. It's totally different to In Excess. It's rough, it's muddy, it's got dub and soul and hip hop. It's the future, right there, at the crescendo to his past. His band, they feel maybe too big. You can see signs all around you. They're spending half a million Aussie dollars just filming this gig. Two helicopters, just for the cool shots. Six band members, 105 suitcases between them. Big, bloated. Their new single is called Baby Don't Cry. It's got the Australian concert orchestra on it. Big, corporate, bloated. The new sounds? Massive attack. No one really knows what they look like. There's no front man. And it gets worse. Grunge happens. Grunge is messy. Grunge is angry. It's never slick and it's never polished. There's a new type of front man. Kurt Cobain. He doesn't look like Byron. It looks like he works in a timber yard. Leather trousers? He's plaid shirts, he's dirty jeans. And, just like that, the future overtakes in excess. And it swamps Michael Hutchins. Something else happens too. Something else that changes it all forever. He's in Denmark, hanging out with his new girlfriend. It's Helena Christiansen, supermodel, of course. It's late. He gets into a fight with a taxi driver. The taxi driver punches him, knocks him out. Hutchins falls, smacks his head on the pavement. He's in hospital for two weeks. Severe concussion, brain bruising. He recovers, but he doesn't. There's real damage there. He's lost his sense of smell, can't really taste anything either. And his character, that's changed too. Remember Michelle Bennett? The first model girlfriend? Here's what she says. He was always such an optimist, but suddenly he became cynical, judgmental and negative about everything. Remember the bass player? Most bass player name ever? That's it, Gary Beers. Gary's pure Aussie, so he says it like this. He was a dick and it wasn't him. That's the thing. So Hutchins retreats into his head, back to the villa he's bought in the south of France. His normal is not anyone else's normal. When people come over, it's Bono and Prince Albert of Monaco and Johnny Depp. And those clichés? They're trapping him now. He runs away for a week to the house of his security guard up the road. He tries to do normal, mows the lawn, but gives up halfway, obviously. Wants to try a McDonald's drive-through. Doesn't have a driving license, obviously. 
So he gets driven there, then swaps seats before they order, then collects the food and gets driven home again. Always the front man, even when he no longer wants to be. And so we come to Paula Yates. It's TV again, because Paula is always on TV. It's 1994. It's a show in Britain called The Big Breakfast. Paula interviews people on a bed. It's like no interview you've ever seen before, except maybe that one in 1985. This is where we're headed. Paula will say later that on their first date, and it was always going to happen, everyone knew, Hutchins did six things she was firmly convinced were illegal. That's where we are now. So, this interview. Hutchins and Yates are lying all over each other. She's in a yellow, low-cut dress. He's in rockstar black. Here's what she says, to the camera at least. We have a guest. He has everything that a rock star needs to have. Danger, talent, curly hair and Australian subtlety. And for the first time, this is a guest that I want to have my leg over. It's both intimate to watch and painful. It's a private conversation. It should be the bit after sex. And it's very Paula. Remember a husband? The saint? That's Bob Geldof. He started Band-Aid, Do They Know It's Christmas, Live Aid. He saved starving kids in Africa. And he's watching this all again. He runs the TV company. He's in the studio, pretending not to listen again. But he knows. We all know. The affair becomes official a year later. Yates leaves the saint. Hutchins leaves the Danish supermodel. A year on, they have a child. They call her Heavenly Harani Tiger Lily. Nothing is ever normal. And the descent continues. Yates has three daughters with Geldof. She wants custody. Then the cleaner at their house, she finds opium in a shoebox under their bed. Opium and photos of Yates and Hutchins in bed doing some of those things you'd be firmly convinced were illegal. You're up against a saint. That's the custody lost. Take a saint's wife and the newspapers. Well, they never leave you alone. But now you're the main target. It's you and Princess Di. Love and fame and scandal on front pages. Always reporters there, wherever you go. How do they know? Who's telling them? Some people think it's Paula. She loves the drama, the attention. What do you think? And it's all humiliation either way. Grunge changed rock. And now there's Britpop too. Liam Gallagher. He's a different kind of frontman. He's frontman as a football fan. He's frontman as a bloke in the pub. Liam isn't Byron. He's Benson and Hedges. There's an awards ceremony. Gallagher's band Oasis are getting best album. Hutchins is presenting it. The torch passing. And what does Gallagher's brother Noel say? Has been shouldn't present awards to gunnabees. Michael Hutchins is lost, chased, strung out. Byron and him, they share a birthday. Hutchins is 37. Byron died at 36. Time is running out. 21st of November, 1997. In two days, in excess are starting a tour around Australia. Smaller venues, smaller crowds, chasing what they used to have. It's the afternoon, and they're rehearsing in Sydney. Hutchins rides his Harley-Davidson around the studio. Andrew Farris, the songwriter, he remembers them saying goodbye, laughing, doing the Monty Python silly walks thing. Tim Farris, the guitarist. 
He remembers an argument about parenting. Who's got it right? Who's doing it wrong? Hutchins is staying at the Ritz-Carlton Hotel in Double Bay. He's checked in as a Murray River, frontman behaviour, going for the pseudonym, the insider joke. He's also been Dick Strangelove and Fabian Sparkle. Nothing is normal. Tonight, it's dinner with his dad and stepmom. Paula and baby Tiger are in England. He wants them to come over for Christmas, bring his stepdaughters too. But Geldof is pushing back. He walks to a restaurant called Flavour of India. Doesn't eat much, mainly drinks lager and smokes. He's not seen his mum for a while, not since she started doing interviews about him for money. His dad spots something, asks if he's okay. This is what his son says. Daddy-o, what are you worrying about? I've never felt better. He walks back to the hotel. He calls Kirk, the guitarist and sax player. No answer, leaves a message, invites him to a party back at the hotel. This is how the final act begins. He meets an old mate in the bar, an actor, Kim Wilson. She's there with her boyfriend, a solicitor. They go up to his room, 524, drink strawberry daiquiris, talk about Tiger, about a film he wants to be in. By 5am, Kim's boyfriend is falling asleep, so the two of them leave. It's now the 22nd of November. Hutchins is all alone in his room, and the phone calls start. At 6am, he phones Paula back in London. She tells him that Geldof isn't going to let her come to Australia, not with their three daughters. At 9am, he calls Geldof. He's in London too. Geldof says later that Hutchins is abusive and threatening. There's a woman in the hotel room next door. She gets woken up by the shouting. She'll tell police she remembers one screamed phrase. She's not your wife anymore. Remember Michelle Bennett? First model girlfriend? She's next. Hutchins tries her, can't get through, leaves a message on her answer phone. He's been doing this recently when he's drunk and upset, looking for someone, reaching out. 9.40am, he calls in excess's manager. That goes to answer phone too. When they listen back, this is the phrase they can't forget. I fucking had enough. 9.54, he tries Michelle Bennett again. This time she answers. What does he say? I need you. That echo of his most famous song. So of course she replies, It's okay, Michael, I'm on my way. It takes a half an hour to get to the Ritz-Carlton. She phones room 524 from the hotel lobby. There's no answer, so she goes up. There's a note pushed out under the door. His handwriting. It says he wants to sleep in. So she writes her own note, pushes it back under the door. I'm here. I'm waiting. That's it for an hour and a half. Then, at 11.50am, a cleaner gets to his room. She knocks. There's no answer. So she uses her master key to open the door, except it's hard to get in. There's a heavy weight behind it. She pushes hard, and she finds him. Michael Hutchins is naked, on his knees, leaning against the back of the door. There's a belt around his neck. It's tied to the metal closing mechanism at the top of the door, hanging loose, the buckle broken. There's no sign of life. The rest of the band are in the rehearsal room waiting. 
They're used to waiting, so they watch the cricket on the TV until it's interrupted. A special news flash. We go now to our newsroom. Rock star Michael Hutchins has been found dead in his hotel room. It's a joke, a wind-up, a mistake. All until a camera crew bursts in and says, What do you say? How would you feel? Tim, he throws up. Kirk, he runs, drives back to his farm, gets raging drunk, falls into his fields, crying his eyes out. I was tipped over the edge, he says. I was beyond grief, I went completely mad. Andrew, songwriter, he's a zombie. All those hours and years sitting together, fitting melodies to words, and now that part of him's gone. He can't write songs anymore. Nothing comes. There's nothing there. The world watches the funeral. A thousand people at St Andrew's Cathedral in Sydney. They're all there, all the family, all the band, all the girls. Michelle Bennett, Kylie, Helena and Paula, in black dress and dark glasses, holding little tiger. Andrew, he puts a pen in the cold hand of his old friend. You wrote for me, for all of us. This is yours. The Farris boys, Kirk, Gary, they carry the coffin. And everyone sings this time. Never tear us apart. Even as it's happening, that's exactly what's happening. There's an autopsy, a coronial inquest. Because after the what comes the why. New South Wales State Coroner Derek Hand gives his verdict on February the 6th, 1998. He says Hutchins committed suicide. He says he was depressed, drunk, on drugs. He's done a blood test. It comes back with alcohol, cocaine, Prozac, Valium, prescription drugs. Okay, suicide. But there was no note. And rumours fly and everyone's looking for an answer that maybe can't come. This is Tim Farris. Michael wasn't the kind of man to quit. But then, this is Bono. He wasn't the sort of man to tell you he was in trouble. Paula Yates? This is the first thing she says, her police statement. He was frightened and couldn't stand a minute more without his baby. She says he told her something during that 6am phone call. I don't know how I'll live without Tiger. But then, she changes. She does two big TV interviews a year later. Now she says she thinks he died from autoerotic asphyxiation. That's when someone tries to partly strangle themselves, starve their brain of oxygen during sex or masturbation. When your brain is short of oxygen, it can make you feel euphoric. That's what they say. That's what Paula says. And that hotel room, 524, they found a book there the morning they found his body, all about autoerotica. Love and fame and scandal on front pages, newspapers selling copies, selling a life and death, selling a mystery. And it never goes away. Not really. John, the drummer, closest in age to Hutchins, there's one question he keeps asking. Why didn't he call me? There's no peace. Hutchins's will leaves half his estate to his daughter, Tiger. The other half split between Paula, his parents, his siblings. But that's not enough. His mum and half-sister sue the band for more money. There's an argument over his ashes. They have to be split. Half with Paula, half with the parents. 
There's an argument over Tiger. The parents want her too. They say Paula can't do it, that she's not safe. Bono, he writes a song. What he would have said to his friend if he'd have had the chance. Stuck in a moment you can't get out of. And that's Paula Yates too. Unable to move, she sells her story again. She sleeps with the urn by her side. And it's too much for her. Too much for anyone. On the 17th of September 2000, she's found dead in her own house. Heroin overdose. Accidental, thinks the coroner. The one who finds her? Four-year-old Tiger. Someone calls the house phone. She answers and says, Mummy is sleeping. The saint comes to the rescue again. Bob Geldof legally adopts Tiger so she can grow up with her three half-sisters. And that's where the story of Paula Yates ends, somehow. And Michael Hutchins, too. All the stuff we've talked about, the good times, the fame, the girls, the dope, it all comes down to him and her in the end. How he died, why he died, why we're still talking about them so long after. That's the story of Michael Hutchins. It was written by Tom Fordyce and performed by me, Emma Clark. It was edited by Steve Jones. Our music partner is BMG Production Music. Want three in excess songs to hear right now? Definitely new sensation. It's the one that broke them in Britain. Maybe Devil Inside for the way he sings it, for what it says about him. And definitely Never Tear Us Apart. You can't not hear that. For a search, we used In Excess Story to Story, the official autobiography by Anthony Bozzer, and Michael, my brother, the lost boy of In Excess by Tina Hutchins. If you want more episodes, subscribe. Scroll up or down this feed, and there are other episodes waiting for you right now. We'll release new ones every Thursday. Thanks for listening. Hey friends, my name is Zach Lupiton. You may know me from the band Dust Bowl Revival, but I also host a music discovery podcast called The Show on the Road. For the last five seasons, I've been able to dive deep and have intimate chats with folks like the Lumineers, Andy DeFranco, Wolfpack, Keb Moe, Lake Street Dive, Bela Fleck, and more. So guess what? After 150 conversations with some of my favorite songwriters from around the world, we are bringing brand new episodes to the Osiris Network. New interviews and intimate acoustic performances will be coming at you this summer. And which episodes are coming next, you ask? I am Zach Goody, the lead singer for the band Smash Mouth. Our band is called Milky Chance. We are based in Berlin. My name is David Shaw. I sing and write songs with my band, The Revivalists. Trust me, these conversations go some wild places. So subscribe to the show on the road on Osiris, and we'll see you soon. I don't think it overstates things to say that the Beatles were the greatest gift to entertainment and culture of our time. A secular religion, if you will. 
with their universal appeal and demonstrable impact on people's lives. I'm Robert Rodriguez, host of Something About the Beatles. With every episode, I speak with historians, musicians, artists, and Beatle witnesses, all in the service of fresh insights into the most joyous cultural entity the world has ever known. I hope you'll join me and listen to Something About the Beatles, now at Evergreen and wherever you get your podcasts. What's up, everybody? I am Finn McKenty, host of the Punk Rock NBA podcast, part of the Sound Talent Media Podcast Network. My podcast is all about doing what you love for a living, and every week I sit down and talk to people who have done exactly that. For example, musicians like Tommy from Between the Buried Me, Matt from Periphery, Lil Lotus and Shinigami, among many others, photographers, artists, designers, YouTubers like Glenn Fricker and Sarah Dietschy, and I unpack exactly how they got to where they are today with the goal of helping you do the same. So if that sounds cool, you can listen and subscribe at SoundTalentMedia.com, and I'll see you there.